and welcome to a special edition bonus Horton Hangout podcast. I'm Laura Horton. And I'm Michael Bentley. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We're so excited to bring to you today a wonderful dentist called Dr. Nadine Majid. I've had the pleasure of knowing Nadine, and I probably should have worked this out, an estimated nine to ten years now. So I'm really excited that we're going to interview Nadine today because he has got so much experience that he can share with you throughout this podcast. What do you need to know about him? Well, Nadim opened a squat private practice in September in 2008. Now, if we just take our minds back, that's when the recession was starting. But jump on two months later, Nadim had two, twin, uh, two twins, well, twins that were born, uh, a boy and a girl. So I think everyone's going to be fascinated to know what life was like then. And the other thing you need to know about Nadim is that he has read around 500 to 600 books on personal development, psychology, business and marketing in the last eight years. And I have to say, he's my go-to guy when I need a book recommendation. Um, Nadim has invested a huge amount of money. He's resourced everything back into himself. So in personal development, so non-dental training, Nadim's invested £30,000. And he's also invested over £100,000 in the last few years alone in his dental education. He's a trained NLP practitioner with Paul McKenna training. And Nadim also learned to computer program and code in his spare time. And in 2001, built a dental practice website. And that was definitely way before many practices were online. Um, and you obviously had the time, Nadim, because you didn't have children then. Um, <laughs> so I'd like to officially welcome Nadim. Nadim, hello. Hi, hi, Laura. Thank you very much. And uh, hi, Michael. You're hello, hello. Thank you for the introduction, Laura. <laughs> You're most welcome. Thank you for giving up some of your very busy time uh, to be with us today to speak to our listeners. So let's jump straight into it. So if we just go back and timestamp a few things, September 2008, uh, the squat practice opened. Two months later, yeah. the twins were born. Can you take us yeah. back a little bit further in 2008 and just tell us where you were, um, you know, what time frame was it where you decided to set up the practice, find the building and then find out also you were having twins. Tell us what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, there's never, a, I guess there's never a right time to do anything, but um, I'd, it'd been pla I'd been planning it for some time. And um, so I, know I was an associate in 2008 and um, sort of 2007. I got to the stage where, as an associate, obviously you're limited as to where, how you can influence the business and how you can move forward. Um, and I was finding that there were things I wanted to do clinically as well as business-wise, and I, and I needed to have that sort of freedom. So then I started looking, initially I was looking at sort of buying a practice. And um, I looked at a number of practices at the time. And um, the thing that I found was that there was still if you were buying a, a existing practice, it was still heavily influenced by the current business owner and where that had been. So what I decided was that a squat practice would be slightly better for myself because it was a fresh start and I could, from day one, we could um, set the, the business as we wanted and to move forward. So kind of got the ball rolling, started looking at um, places and locations. Um, at that time, what I did was I, um, I spoke to a few estate agents and um, we I commissioned one to, I gave them some um, sort of criteria as to what I wanted uh, in, a, in a location. 
uh, I wanted something that was um, very highly visible, had uh, good footfall passing trade and um, in, a, in a desirable location. So I, I mapped out, I got a map and mapped out a few sort of locations which I wanted. Um, and then basically, the, you know, we looked at a few premises. Um, and then eventually we found something which was, uh, which I thought was suitable. And then the next stage at that point was also to get planning as well. So because um, we needed a um, change of use with the, from the council. So all of that started and then we were quite far down the line and um, my wife then we found out that she was expecting. Um, and then at that point, I think it was April, um, April 2008. So I turned, um, I turned 30, so my birthday was in April and yeah. my wife had the, um, the, the three week, three months can, I think it was three months can, might have been five months can. And um, yeah, three months. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the, uh, so yeah, so that was the point we found out it was actually twins. Um, but like I say, things were so far down the line with everything. Um, we just, I, there was no going back essentially at that stage. Um, so we just decided to plod on and um, just move forward and just carry on. Um, and yeah, it, you know, those first few months were tough, um, particularly with everything that was, was going on. But yeah, so that's that's where we, uh, we and then in, like you said, in November, uh, the, we opened the building up in September. 2008 and then the twins were born in November 2008. So. Wow fantastic. Nadine what a fantastic introduction to what you've achieved and I think one of the things that I want to talk to you about is particularly around your marketing because you did open the, uh, the practice in a recession and I know that you were really at the cutting edge of doing marketing well at a very early stage when practices were not really alert and aware. And I just want to talk really about what ideas, what moved you forward at that time and what marketing have you held on to? What are the things that are still resulting in win-wins for you in 2019? Yeah, sure. Um... I think the way that I look at marketing, I would say there's internal marketing, so marketing that you do inside the practice and then sort of external marketing. So that's the way that I would look at it. External marketing is everything that you do sort of outside the practice to attract new patients in. And then internal marketing is what you do inside the building to your existing, your existing um, patient base um, to then um, increase the the number of patients from from your existing patient base so ex i think that and the marketing has changed and developed over a period of time as we've as we've changed as a practice i think initially um external marketing the website particularly um i think that would be the biggest thing um and even the website itself has changed dramatically over a period of time I mean, initially, because uh, some of the things that we did very early on, um, we had, a, obviously, we've got a shop front, so we had quite a lot of passing trades. We have, a, we've, uh, we have a number of different types of posters that we put up at the front of the shop, um, an A-board. Um, so that visibility at the front is quite, uh, quite noticeable, and um, we do attract quite a lot of uh, walk-in customers. So that's one thing. Um, and that's something that we've continued. Um, then that's an interesting point, sorry Nadine, that you've made about walk-ins. 
because the team have to be ready for a walk-in patient, don't they? And that's a very different experience because when people walk in, they want to be nosy, don't they? They want to have a look at your practice. How did you prepare the team for walking experiences? Well, now we've actually have a, um, we, we have a treatment coordinator and um, what we have is if, um, if she's got the availability, um, I mean, initially what we were doing is that the, for a walk-in, the receptionist would have a little discussion with them, get some, get some sort of idea of what they were wanted and what their concerns were, um, and then invite them in to come back for a, a, a sort of pre-consultation. If the treatment coordinator is free at that time, she'll then uh, sometimes even do a, a sort of free consultation with them at that moment in time. Um, and then, uh, you know, show them around the, the practice as well. A lot of what we find is that with walking, walk-ins is that they've, sometimes it takes them a while. So it, it might be that they've, uh, we're on their way to work and they've passed us several times. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, you know, so they kind of know about us to a degree. Um, and it's just taking that next step. Um, so we have, a, we do actually do quite a lot of role play as well. And um, and often finding spending that little bit of time to sort of go through that initial greeting of when somebody walks in, I think that's that's key as well because obviously that is that. Yeah, yeah. I love what you're saying here because you know what you're sharing with our listeners is that actually the walking moment is prepared for. It's not something yeah. that is just done without any thought. You've actually thought about that one of your marketing areas is the fact that you know your location and your visibility increases the amount of walk-ins and then you've actually started to think about that experience and I think that leads into a, a really bigger question as well is when did you decide to have treatment coordination Nadeem and why do you think that is important to your practice and your marketing? Um, I think it was probably, the, well, to be honest, it was probably before we started, really. I mean, um, I'd planned the layout of the surgery accordingly. Um, and we had a, an office uh, consultation room kind of area built in. Um, and then it was sort of probably about uh, a year or so, or maybe a year and a half after we opened that um, I started working with Laura and then we built the systems in place for treatment coordination and, and worked on that. Um, how important it is to the practice, I would say it's, it's key. Um, I mean, to, to us as a practice, it's made a massive difference. Um, and that role is, is central to the whole patient experience as well, um, because that's the first thing that they do when they come in and that's the first impression that they get. Um, but also from one thing which has I've benefited and the practice has benefited, it's almost acts as a, a, a filtering system to an extent. So mm. we get to choose, um, you know, what type of patient and who we want into the practice. Because at that before, for example, before they've even um, before I've even done any treatment on somebody. By the time they've, um, I've picked up that handpiece to actually do any treatment on anybody, they would have spent probably about two to two and a half hours with us. Um, so by that time, you've got a very good idea of whether this patient is right, or you know, or, or you know, this is the right type of patient, and also is, are we are we the right type of practice to be treating this type of patient, and am I doing the right type of treatment for this patient? 
so it's meant that we have very few complaints, um, very few sort of patients who are not happy with, with treatment, luckily. Uh, I mean, looking back, um, when we audited our sort of complaints, we probably get about one a year. And that I think that that is probably due to, I think a lot of that is due to the um, the initial steps and the, the whole process that we do. Um, and also what it's meant from a patient's perspective is that they're very, very well informed. So by the time they've come to me and by, by the time they've actually going to have treatment like say they spent about two two three hours with us and that process has informed them about not only the treatment but about us how we work what we do um and vice versa so it's often it works very well so it's a it's like i mean i always the sort of an analogy i would say is that it's like dating you know you wouldn't marry somebody um, on the first date and it's just, <laughs> no, definitely it's not <laughs> So it's the same thing, you know, going through that process, you built up that relationship and you get to know the patient and vice versa. So it's made a massive. I love it, Nadeem. I love how passionate you are about making sure the relationship is right and how that is almost the drive of your dentistry. And I love the fact that you said choosing a patient. So powerful. So, so powerful. I think those yeah. those few words there, we get to choose our patients, sound like a dream to so many dentists. But in fact, it's a reality to you, Nadine, that you do get to choose your patients that are right for you by the way you've implemented all these systems. And if I just go on to where you're saying, you know, before patients even start treatment, they've spent perhaps an hour, sorry, two hours, two and a half hours in the practice. That's also because of your new patient's comprehensive assess assessment system, which, you know, everyone, if you don't know, I love new patient examinations and routine examinations. They should be such a powerful thing to the patient. This is the time for the dentist to showcase their clinical abilities. So Nadeem, if you just want, wouldn't mind sharing a bit about that and also just link that into some words that I know you use uh, quite a lot, the importance of high tech and high touch. So would you be able to explain what you do and you know the importance of a comprehensive assessment? Yeah, so I mean, we've probably spent about three, three, four years uh, building up the comprehensive assessment. So um, so the way that the um, assessment works is that they would come in for the um, initial consultation with the treatment coordinator. She will get an idea of um, you know, what the patient's concerns are, how long they've had these concerns. So all the, get the story behind why they're here um, and the reasons why they're here and all the social aspects, you know, um, is it what's triggered them to get, come in and seek treatment. So, for example, is it a recent divorce? Is it a, a split, or um, is it the fact that their their children have left home and you know they're empty nesters now, and they're looking to sort of spend money on themselves, um, or have they sold you know some property, for example, and they've got some money? So all of that comes into play. Um, then they'll book in with me for a full clinical examination, which is usually an hour long. Um, I will have that uh, story from the treatment coordinator as well. She will hand that over to me. Um, I'll have a, a brief chat with the uh, the patient and then we'll undertake the full examination. Now the examination is about 40, uh, about an hour long. In that process, there's a systemized approach that we take and we assess the, um, the inside of the mouth, lips, cheeks, tongue, and we also do a full um, examination as well. 
once we've done that, we'll get a full suit, well, a, um, a handover then to uh, one of the nurses who are trained in dental photography and radiology. So she will then take the photographs and extra pictures and then I come back into the office and then they hand me over the um, photographs and extra pictures. We put all of that into a, uh, a presentation and then I spend time uh, putting everything together. Um, and then we get the patient back in. So sometimes we will stop there and rebook an appointment depending on how complex the treatment uh, will be or if it's not as complex and we present on the same day, we sit down with them, explain all the options, um, and then go through the options and discuss everything with them. Um, and that can take about half an hour or so, just discussing those options. What we, what we do now as well is that we have a, um, the treatment coordinator then sits in with that options meeting as well. She will then take notes about everything that's discussed. And then those notes will then be translated back into the uh, the software. Then I, at that point, um, once the treatment plan is agreed, I then leave and um, the treatment coordinator then finishes off the uh, appointment, just doing all the financials and um, booking the appointments. Now, that whole process, probably, like I say, uh, start to finish is probably about two hours. Now, with, the, with going back to what... Laura mentioned with regards to high, high tech and high touch. That's very high touch. So it's very, very kind of bespoke um, to the individual and they feel very well looked after. But then at the same time, it's high tech because we're using, you know, photography, digital photography and uh, digital radiographs and everything and, and presenting that in a very um, sort of, um, uh, you know, with a, with a, on the computer screen so that they can see that we're using, you know, uh, the best technology available, but also a much, much personalised approach. Yeah, lovely. It's fantastic, Nadeem. And I just want to pick out something else that other people listening might have picked out and thought, oh, tell me more about that, which is your upskilled nurses. And I think it's important to let everyone know that Nadeem, um, up until this summer, um, you have delivered all of this experience with two team members. So I was just yeah. thinking people might be picturing this, you know, huge practice with loads of team members, but actually uh, it's a very small team, two team members. You've only recently, you know, got your third who happens to be called Laura, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, go for that one. Great name. Only joking. Um, but what you've done there with your existing team members even from a clinical point of view here you've upskilled them you've trained them they've got yeah. additional qualifications to support yeah. you in your examination and in your clinic time so how important has that been and what journey did you go on there and at what point yeah I think that's been critical I mean when I first started um, I, I started with the emphasis that anything and everything that can be outsourced um, or delegated um, I will do and the less that I can do, the better. Because I, I mean, I've you know I've got enough on my plate to be able to to do the dentistry and everything else. So anything that can be taken off that um, is great. And I, I said that to the team from day one. I said, look, you know, um, I don't want to be the central figure um, in the practice. Um, I'm happy to take a step back, and then um, I want the team to be able to be at the forefront in in everything. And um, they were quite happy with that. And also, when you're recruiting, you know, that's very important to actually emphasize that, that 
it's the team that are going to be um, the forefront. I'm going to be um, at the back, um, you know, obviously delegating and um, deciding on where the, the practice is going to go, but you're going to be at the forefront of doing the treatment. So in terms of the, for example, just to give you an idea of some of the stuff that we delegated out and upskilled the, the staff to do. So um, uh, Sophie, one of our nurses now, she actually, she does, she's done the radiology, uh, radiography exam. So she does all the x-rays. Um, Jenna's done the sedation exam. So we do offer sedation as well. So she does all the um, sedation OBS. Um, she's also our treatment coordinator. Um, there's things like impression taking as well. So, you know, that can be learned. And I think there's courses that you can um, upskill the nurses to do that. And then also photography as well. So all of those things. And then the, th the, the other thing is they actually, the team as well, really, really want to, to do things if you get the right team. Because um, it allows them to, they're not just sort of sitting in the background. Like I said, they're at the forefront and they're continuously upscaling. And it, it just gives them that motivation as well to continue to know that, yeah, I'm, today I'm going to be taking impressions and next week I'm going to learn how to do sort of camera uh, photography and things. So that it's been beneficial. And also it's, it's made us very efficient, I would say, like you said, because we've only got, we only had sort of two team members. It's made us efficient enough to be able to maximize the, um, the workforce, um, but at the same time not have, you know, um, keep the team small as well. Mm. I think that's fantastic because what you're doing there is not only if you're nurturing yourself, you've nurtured this beautiful patient experience alongside allowing the team to really understand the brand that you want the patients to have and how they fit into that experience, which is just absolutely magnificent, if you don't mind me saying, Adeem. I think that's so great. And I think a lot of our listeners will take so much on there and just go, do you know what? Actually, you can really achieve great things. I think one of your... Uh, interesting parts of your business is you are a small team and that a lot of practices do think as Laura's mentioned that actually you can only do it when you've got more you know really really big teams and actually you're achieving all this on very low numbers but I know it's not all been plain sailing and obviously as a principal you need to make sure that you know how to manage team members especially when you know things do go wrong sometimes and I do know that you went through a particular difficult experience with a team member and um, how did that make you feel and you know have you made any changes from that experience? Yeah so I mean the, uh, the, the I guess the, the point that you're talking about there Michael was the um, we had a team member who was um, um, we found out was um, involved in gross misconduct so we had to go through the disciplinary process and eventually the outcome was that um, we had to um, uh, relieve her of her duties um, the yeah so the, I mean the things that I learned from that was that um, you have to yes you have to delegate but at the same time don't delegate without any um, sort of um, feedback or getting that um, uh, reporting back from the team so because if you do that you may as well just that essentially is what we call abdication so you're just basically letting letting go of everything so you still have to have some control um, 
So, for example, one of the things would be within a small team, um, things like checking the, the mail, you know, very simple thing. Um, so to save time, I was asking the, the team, uh, I just asked the team to open up the mail and just give me the, the unopened ones, the ones that are more private and confidential. So with this particular issue, with this gross misconduct, she'd, she'd intercepted some of the parcels and stuff, and that's how um, was part of the whole uh, the whole thing. So just making sure that you sort of set up systems which allow you to check um, on the team on the uh, and on also to have make sure that you have that reporting back so yes delegate out but then also make sure that you then um, on a sort of weekly monthly basis um, that's that um, task which has been delegated out you then sit down with the team member and ask them right okay report back to me what have you done what you know what have you done things and and getting the KPIs back from that uh, team member um, I think that's been what the biggest learning thing from that was from that incident um, and then also I think the other thing was that at that time uh, I think I kind of to at a certain point I blamed myself as well because I thought well why didn't I see it coming um, and often I think uh, have, coming through that I realized that well you're gonna have situations and there's people out there that will sort of take advantage and often no matter what you do they will see some way of getting through it but if you set up systems in place to you know checks on a monthly basis or whatever um, make sure these systems are strong enough to be able to um, have that in place so that you know if they do try sort of theft or whatever something along the line some check somewhere will, will prevent them from uh, absolutely uh, and i think it's a really good reminder isn't it nadim as well that you know principals that have small teams often there's a lot of trust there isn't there there's a lot more trust there because you know you only work with a certain amount of people on a day-by-day -day basis and then yeah. sometimes they veer down a path that you didn't know that they were going to do as i call it the worms can turn at any point and it's a shock when that happens especially in a smaller team i think because everybody you know there is a ripple effect for each team member, isn't there? And you haven't got that many to have that effect. So, you know, it's a very emotional situation, isn't it? As you say, yeah. you learn things, you know, from those situations. And that definitely happened at my practice as well. We had a situation, I got a larger team than you had, but we had a, a you know, a gross misconduct as well. And I know what the ripple effect actually does feel like and it is uncomfortable and I think the fact that you've recognized that changes need to be made however you still nurture your team to deliver the patient experience that you want I think is absolutely fantastic yeah, yeah absolutely really is Nadim you know everyone a difficult time isn't it and it's not you know all plain sailing because you've started up the practice in a recession and I think you know you've said to me you've sacrificed a lot of time a lot of money you know what was it like you know setting up the practice from nothing you know from a cash flow point of view and an investment point of view you know with the marketing because you know there was so much marketing that you were having to look at and try in different areas what was that like um yeah so the early days were, were tough um i think what kept me going was um particularly at the beginning um from a mindset point of view when you're building a, a practice it's a completely different mindset to when you've got something that's already set up um, 
and the, I think the key thing is that financially you're not sort of taking something you're not sort of uh, taking a salary from day one however you are building um, a future you're building a business which will be worth um, something in the future and that's the sort of that mindset minds um, that mindset change is you know the effectively from um, an employee to an entrepreneurial um, sort of mind mind shift um, so to have that entrepreneurial you've got to be able to sit down and realize that yeah I'm not making anything now but what I'm building is I'm building an asset which will then be worth something in the future um, and that's like you know, in effect, that's the the sort of delight, delayed sort of gratification. You're not cashing in. You're not going to cash in from day one. Um, I think it was um, uh, Brian Tracy that says, um, when you build a business, the first two years you'll um, you'll lose money. The next two years you break even, and then the two years after that is when you start making money. Um, so that, in effect, that's you know, you've got to have that long-term sort of mind, mindset. Um, and that's what get, got me through particularly those first um, first years or so. Um, and then also, I think the other thing I would say is that those first years, you just have to kind of sit down and just deal with stuff in, in the moment as it happens, mm. not, get too, not get too concerned about what's going on next week or whatever. Yeah. Um, you just have to take things one at a time. Yeah, definitely. And you just mentioned about Brian Tracy there. And as I said in the introduction, Nadine, you know, you've read five to 600 books, which is a staggering amount uh, of books. I'd love to see your bookshelf. Um, <laughs> but I really would. And I know also, Nadine, you went, you went, you know, to an e-reader, then back to actual books again. But yeah. how important has the the reading of books been to you to keep you strong keep that mindset right and also to look at different areas as well you didn't you haven't just stuck to one area you've, you've looked at many different areas within you know your your reading so how important has that been for you and is there any I know it's really putting you on the spot here any question uh, any books rather that you just think people have to read yeah okay so um in terms of how important it's been to me it's been critical um i think well firstly the other thing is no matter i think once i think it was tony robbins or something who said that no matter what you are going through at this particular moment in time there's somebody somewhere that's already gone through that and has had has found a solution um and then they've probably wrote about it somewhere in a book so <laughs> with that in mind the more you can read the more likely you are to um you know, if you've come across a problem, chances are somebody's already sort of had that problem and resolved it. Um, so you can learn stuff, but also then to, it helps you keep uh, uh, that mindset of, well, such and such a person, you know, for example, reading autobiographies, such and such a person went through so much, much, much worse than me. Um, I can get through this. Um, so it gives you that resilience, um, builds that character. Um, and then you learn so much as well. So not just learning about individuals, but businesses as well. So one of my big, um, um, one of my sort of authors that I listen to read quite a lot is uh, Joseph Michelli. And um, what he does is he sort of looks at um, several different businesses and he's kind of back engineered and sort of breaks down what makes them successful. 
Um, so there's stuff from there that we've put into the practice. So for example, just to, as an example, he sort of um, he's wrote a book on um, the Ritz Carlton Hotel Group, mm. and um, one of the things um, which he mentioned is that within the Ritz Carlton, um, the team members have the capability to resolve any um, guest problems uh, up to the cost of two thousand pounds. So if a, if a guest has a problem or an issue, um, they don't have to ask a manager how to resolve it. They've got the ability and power to resolve that up to the limit of £2,000. Now, that gives immense power to the, uh, the team member, but also it means that the, um, the, the problem is dealt with very, very quickly um, at the same time. And that's something that we took, I took and implemented um, in the practice. So I've I told my team that, if there's ever a problem and you need to sort it out, you've got up to a hundred pounds um, to to sort that issue out. Um, I don't need to be contacted. You can tell me afterwards, um, but that means that they've got the power to do that. Um, and also, if I'm not around, that for example, if a patient complains about something, they say sorry, you know, apologize, and then here's a, a gift from us, maybe a box of chocolates or flowers or something, okay. and that is made uh, just little things like that you can find little key nuggets here and there but then when you put them together um it can make a massive difference that's absolutely amazing isn't it and because they can act now they can act then when there's a concern they haven't got to wait to discuss it to bring it up at a meeting and you're given them the, the yeah. autonomy to make the best decision to satisfy that patient um, and to surprise the patient as well and try and delight them when actually they may have been dissatisfied with something or other. I think that's really powerful and I'm sure that's something so many people can start to look to take forward um, in their practice. And I think one thing as well, Nadine, from um, a, a book called, is it The Power of Now? You, re you use that yeah. when it comes to work-life balance as well? Yeah, so, I mean, The Power of Now by um, Eckhart Tolle. Um, essentially, it's about being in the um, the present moment in time. We we so many sort of going through life where we're not actually present. So you may be in the practice, you may be doing a sort of some treatment on somebody, but you're actually thinking about you know the shopping or what you're going to do in the evening, or perhaps you've had a um, an argument with your wife that morning and you're <laughs> worried about that. Um, so. The power of now is being in present in that and it's also um it's kind of centers you as a person uh, as a mindset but also it's respectful for the person that you're there you know so i don't i i, I tend not to have a conversation with my nurse um if i'm treating the patient i will i will concentrate on the the patient and, and do the treatment um if the patient can't talk I, I tend not to talk so th that's just that's just me but I find not only is it respectful for the individual that you that you're there to be inside um, to be in the in the in that moment in time but also it centers you as a person to be uh, um, to be present at that time and then thirdly you can't actually do anything about it so at that moment in time just be present and do what you need to do you're not you can't do the shopping at the same time as you're doing the treatment. So there's no point thinking about the, the shopping. Think about what you'd need to do at this moment in time and get that done. Mm, brilliant. Fantastic tips there, Nadine. Absolutely. And I think that brings us nicely, Nadine, for you to be able to share some top tips 
um, to the dentists that are listening uh, about your experiences. So have you got a couple of top tips that you could share with us? Uh, yeah, so that's quite a difficult question. I don't, don't know if it's... I think what I would say is, um, resi- well, the first thing I'd say, uh, going back to mindset, is um, to build that sort of resilient mindset is to sort of continue to read sort of autobiographies really of, of people who've been through in similar situations and um, that I think that um, that builds a certain character as an individual and you realize that you know you've you may be going through a difficult stage at this point of your practicing career but there's other people that have gone through worse so to read autobiographies that's what I would say um other top tips i would say um to really involve the team uh, to have an openness uh within the practice so for example we're quite open with our sort of uh financials um and um the the practice the, the team know what's coming in and what's going out um so be, to be open with the financial aspect of it um and then thirdly what we've discussed already which is just to have to delegate, but at the same time to make sure that you then um, have that sort of uh, feedback and sit down and, and ask for that sort of uh, feedback from, from your team to hold them accountable. So to delegate, but with accountability. And brilliant, brilliant top tips. And you've been absolutely fantastic sharing all of your amazing experience with us and I don't know you as well as Laura Nadine but that was truly fascinating really fascinating I know and as we always say we wish we had more time (laughs) and we've got loads more questions we can ask um but I think you know just to summarize for for our listeners and you know there's a wealth of information that Nadine has shared I think it's about rewinding listening and picking things out and then I think what you've given here on today's interview Nadine is lots of little nuggets that will set people off thinking and that's what's always great isn't it when you're listening to a podcast or reading an interview to pick out something it's like a book isn't it you pick out a little nugget and off your mind goes to help you think of ideas and I think that is absolutely fantastic and the key things really the messages are it's all about your mindset your mindset has been uh, the word you've used is critical to the development of your business um, through the early days and still now um, the constant reviewing and expansion of your patient experience. You said you've been working on your comprehensive assessment for the last three to four years. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? So the constant development of that and upskilling your team, doesn't matter what size your team is, Nadine's advice is to delegate out, use scope of practice to do other, so your team can do things that you therefore don't have to do, which is absolutely brilliant. And then with delegation, I think your, your tip there was, you know, what is delegation? And that delegation is about follow through and getting that feedback. Otherwise, um, it's about abdication. So that, that delegation, if you're delegating, because there are a lot of dentists that either love to delegate or don't delegate at all. If you're a love to delegate person, really review your delegation skills because um, and, and the processes for, for that, because that will really support you and the team as well. Uh, So Nadeem, I cannot thank you enough um, for joining us on our bonus edition Horton Hangout podcast. And I'd just like to say once more, thank you. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
Thank you. Oh, we definitely have you again. It was brilliant. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for doing. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe so you can be notified of our next episode.